This is your host, Silas Dean, and this is a Creep Time original podcast, The Sinister. So make sure to go check out Creep Time, the podcast, right after this show. I think it's safe to say that, at least in the world of true crime, I am personally no stranger to things that are tragic, but I'm also no stranger to things that are mysterious. And this is by far one story that always sticks out to me that is one of the most mysterious. And what's interesting is that I usually conflate that with things like disappearances, you know, people who kind of up and left or they just vanished. This isn't that story, but it is chilling. I'm not sure how many people who are listening have actually watched the documentary on this, but I would say it's pretty safe to assume that most people who are at least somewhat familiar with the true crime world have heard about this story. They have heard the most chilling sentiment that came from it. The words spoken over the phone, there's something wrong with Aunt Diane. Welcome back, everybody, to another episode of The Sinister with Silas. I'm your host, Silas Dean, and every week I come right on here. I hang out with you right after an episode of Creep Time, the podcast, and I cover the eeriest stories that I know. So please follow and subscribe to the podcast and turn on the bell notification so that you never have to miss an episode. And I would also appreciate a review and if you could share the podcast to help support the stories of The Sinister. Thanks again for stopping by. And with that, let's get into the story. So before I really get into it and talk about this very specific day where this all goes on, I have to say this is by far one of the most chilling and just confusing cases to me. It's very, I don't really know how to put it into words or articulate this well. It's just very senseless. And I I don't want to say like completely out of character because we don't have full context into this woman's life and what may have been going on behind the scenes, but I I have a really tough time making sense of the story. So I'm very curious to hear how you receive it. But before I get into it, I think the first thing we should do is maybe go back and just talk about Diane. Diane Schuler and what is her backstory. So Diane was born on November 13th, 1972 in Floral Park, New York. Now Diane kind of grew up in this house full of boys. She had four brothers and her father But her mother, when she was very young, actually left their family, just left home. And I think later on in the story, her brothers would eventually kind of reconcile that relationship. Diane never did. She was really never able to foster a relationship with her mother later in life. And I don't want to say that that's a precursor to this, you know, experience or what happened in this case. But I think it does set the stage for the kind of person Diane was determined to grow up to be. She knew from a very young age. I want to be a mom, and I am never going to be a mom like my mom. I will never walk out on my family, which is so chilling to think about that in the context of this story and what happens. But I think that kind of frames things up a little bit, because when Diane eventually does grow up, she's described as like a fortress of a woman. Like she's very tough, natural born leader, just really likes to take charge in most instances. She eventually meets a man and they would get married. 
So that man was Daniel Schuler, and they end up having two children together. They have a daughter and a son. And the way that he described her and kind of everybody who knew the family was that Diane was sort of in charge always. She was extraordinarily well-organized. Like I said, she really liked to take charge. And she sort of ran that house. I mean, she was involved in almost every aspect of everybody's life in that home. Which I hope is kind of painting this picture here that what I'm trying to convey is she's a very put-together person on the surface. You know, like she gets what she wants, she goes after it, and she keeps everything in her life very well organized in its lane. So how do we explain the latter half of this story and what she does? So that is our setup, really. We've got this woman. She has a very high-profile job. She is really in charge of her family. She's a PTA mom. She is running the show. But this all kind of comes to a head, and the entirety of this day where it all unfolds is in July. So on July 26th of 2009, something took place with the family. So it was on this day that Diane and her husband Daniel, they actually decided they were going to take a camping trip. They were going to bring not only their kids, but also their nieces. So they plan to take them up to Hunter Lake Campground, which I think is up in like Parksville, New York or something. It's, it's a little further out from where they live. If I could paint the picture of this place, it's very scenic, very beautiful, very family friendly. And it's kind of just a place where I would say groups of people, families go to sort of escape. They can go out on the water. It's a safe and calming experience. Nothing out of the ordinary. But let's go a step further and just paint the picture of exactly how many children are with Diane and Daniel. So there's Diane's kids, there's Brian, he's five years old, and then there's Erin, her daughter, she's only two. So then we've got three nieces. There's Allison, she's seven years old, there's Kate, she's five, and then there's Emma, who is nine. She is the eldest in the car. All three girls are Diane's brothers. So it's five kids, and they're all pretty young, especially Diane's kids, and Diane herself is pretty young. She's only 36 years old at this point. But this all starts at the campground the morning that they're leaving, right? And I mentioned they were in the car. Specifically, they're getting into Diane's car. So Diane was actually borrowing the car. It was her brother's. And it was a Ford-style 2003 minivan, something that could accommodate all five kids. The plan is they get up that morning. You know, they've already kind of made coffee, had breakfast. They've cleaned up the campsite. They want to beat the traffic. Diane's husband says he's going to drive separately. And he's going to take the dog in his car because he has a truck. So it has like a flatbed in the back. So that would be better for the dog. Diane is like, I'm going to drive straight home. I'll take all five kids. Now, timestamp wise, this is putting Diane and her departure time at right around 9.30 a.m. That's when she's got all kids in the van. She's leaving the campground. Any of the adults who like interacted with her as she was leaving, they said she was completely normal. Nothing seemed awry. And actually, she was on her way to McDonald's because not all of the kids had eaten yet. So she was going to take them through the drive-thru get everybody breakfast. So she ends up stopping in Liberty. This is where she gets to the drive-thru for McDonald's. Any of the workers who interacted with her that morning, again, oddly, they said that she was very normal. Like nothing really seemed off. It was just a mom with a bunch of kids in her car who was like ordering. She seemed lucid. She seemed coherent. So where does this all go wrong sometime in the morning? So timeline-wise, we kind of fast forward to around 11 a.m. where we see Diane on camera. She stops at a convenience store at a gas station. She's filling up her tank, goes inside. And again, she spoke with the clerk, someone who was working there. And he said that she also seemed very normal, very lucid, but she was repeatedly asking if they had a specific type of pain medication, 
possibly indicating that she had some sort of a headache or she was motioning to her face. It might have been a toothache. She's asking if they have these pain meds. They don't have them. So she ends up leaving. We see her leaving on camera, gets back into the car, and then something really goes off very quickly here. Shortly after 11 a.m., there is a whole host of calls that start flooding in to 911 to report that there is a driver who is on Interstate 86 and 87. They are driving very aggressively. They're tailgating people. They're flashing their lights. They're honking their horn for prolonged periods of time. They're kind of swerving all over the road. Those calls would be connected back to a car that fit the description of Diane's van. So we don't exactly know what's going on at this point, but what we do know timeline-wise, at least when we're reviewing the case, it's that Diane walked into this convenience store, looked very lucid, pretty sober on camera. I mean, could have fooled me. And she's complaining about a pain, possibly in her tooth or her head. Leaves, suddenly gets on the highway, and she's driving erratically. At 11.37 a.m., Diane actually used her cell phone to call her brother. Again, it's his girls who are in the car. And she says that she's going to be a little bit late to getting home because they hit traffic. She doesn't sound out of it on the phone, I guess, to his description, it, which is shocking because, like, at this point, she's flying all over the road, so something is going on. But at least on the phone, he buys it. You know, nothing seems out of the ordinary. So maybe she's just covering really well. We just, we don't know what's going on. So that call ends, and then at 11.45, we get a witness who claimed to see Diane parked on the side of the road. She's out of her van. They claimed they saw her, like, violently throwing up on the side of the road. So I'm getting the picture that she's possibly intoxicated or she's having some sort of a medical episode. She is sick, clearly. But what's really disturbing about this is it's not the only witness statement about this. It's a little while after this, right after the 11.45 witness statement, another witness statement would later come in when we reconstruct the timeline where they also saw Diane at another rest stop again violently throwing up like there's something going on here with her but then there's a bit of a gap of time in the story which is really confusing to me it's about an hour of time where we don't exactly know where she was and like what was going on but we do know that at 1 p.m one of the nieces actually calls her own mother on diane's cell phone and she says the fateful phrase mommy there's something wrong with aunt diane and she can hear, the mother can hear in the background that the girls are crying, like there's something going on in that van. So, of course, you know, their mother, she says, put Aunt Diane on the phone right now. She puts Diane on the phone. Diane sounds somewhere between like lucid, but like she's not making sense. And she's like, no, 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 the girls and I were just playing, we're playing. And of course, you know, this mother, she's trying to inquire and say like, why are the girls crying? Why are they saying there's something wrong? Diane's not making sense and eventually just hangs up the phone, drops the call. That's at around 1 p.m. By 1.15, what we do know is that Diane left her cell phone on the side of the highway and then continued driving. So then we just get into a bit of chaos. I mean, like, calls are trying to come in from Diane's brother, from the mother of the girls, from Diane's husband. Like, people are trying to get a hold of her. They're calling 911. They think she's having an actual medical episode, but she doesn't have any medical history that can really support this. Like, it, it just doesn't make sense, like, what's going on with her. 
But the 911 calls are not only coming from the family, they are still coming from pedestrians, from other drivers on the road, because Diane is just flying down the highway and she's driving almost to the side of the road, like off the road. But all of this comes to a very dangerous peak. At around 1.30 p.m. that day, there are about four calls that flood in to 911, all describing a vehicle, a red minivan, that is driving on the Taconic State Parkway in the opposite direction of traffic. Diane has gotten herself and these five kids in her car onto the highway, and she is driving the wrong way. The thing about this story that has always given me chills are just the witness statements of this moment. Because, you know, many people saw her. They were on that parkway and they saw this car driving pin straight. I mean, not deviating whatsoever. It wasn't swaying in and out of traffic. She is going 75, 85 miles per hour pin straight in the wrong direction of traffic. She's going against traffic. So people, I mean, you can imagine... They are just flying all over the road trying to dodge her, like trying to get out of the way because it seems like she's not even cognizant that she is flooring it in the opposite direction. And the people who actually caught a glimpse of her through her window, they claimed that she looked totally normal. She had a blank expression on her face. It was as if she wasn't even aware of what she was doing. And she's got these five kids in the car. But with all of these calls flooding into 911, of course, we've got units like in route. They are trying to intercept this and figure out what is going on with this woman. But it's too late. Diane would be flooring it 75 miles per hour for about 1.7 miles down the parkway before she has a head-on collision with another car. It was later determined that Diane was soaring at about 85 miles per hour when she hit head-on with a 2004 Chevy Trailblazer, which then spun out into another car, a 2002 Chevy, and the scene was devastating. There were three older men who were in the car that she impacted. It was a father and son, as well as a friend of theirs who was in their 70s. All three were instantly killed. Diane herself was ejected from the car and killed almost instantly. Two of the nieces inside her car um, it's believed none of them were wearing seatbelts. Two of them were killed instantly, as well as Diane's own daughter, who they believe was also not even in a car seat at two. One of Diane's other nieces was clinging on to life. She would later pass in the ICU just about a day or two later. Diane's son, who was five, he was actually gravely injured, but would end up surviving the crash. He is the sole survivor from that van although he had extensive head injuries and eventually lost an eye. He was saved, chillingly, from the bodies of the other girls in the car. They had sort of braced the impact of the crash, and again, he would be the only survivor from this vehicle. The other car that was impacted that kind of hit in the um, spin-out, the 2002 Chevy, they did survive. They had minor injuries, but both of them survived the crash. And to paint the picture of what this scene looked like, I mean, it was absolute horror from the witness descriptions. Cars on fire, bodies were burning, multiple bodies scattered across the road, in, in the in-between and in the crossover. It was just absolutely horrific. And nobody could make sense of how or why it happened. Why was Diane doing it? 
Now, the news coverage on this was absolutely insane. It's a horrific tragedy. It doesn't make any sense. But of course, people want to know what was found at the scene, what was found in the car. And one of the first tells is that inside the vehicle seemed to be a broken bottle of absolute vodka. According to Diane's husband, she did not have a history of alcoholism or drinking. And it also didn't make sense. I mean, it just, it wasn't logical to think that this woman who was offering to take all five children in her van, 9.30 in the morning, was just downing vodka behind the wheel. Clearly, she didn't have a history of like DUIs or she didn't, it just, it was so nonsensical and so inconsistent with the sort of rigid and put together person that we knew Diane to be. But again, appearances can be deceiving. So the initial narrative in the tragedy is that Diane was a secret alcoholic and that she was drinking behind the wheel and somehow it had impacted her to the point where she could not stop driving. She didn't know which way of the road she was driving on and eventually it claimed all of these lives. So they do an autopsy. They get the tox report back because again, the family is insistent she must have been having a medical emergency. There is no way she could have been drunk. That bottle of vodka... That's just something that would have been in the car from like the camper. That's something we would have packed for the campground. Her tox report comes back. Blood alcohol level of 0.19%. To put that in context, that is the equivalent for a woman of Diane's size of 10 drinks. It's devastating. It's horrific to imagine, but there's really no ambiguity about it. In my opinion, it's very clear Diane was drinking, and she drank excessively 10 drinks worth of vodka between the hours of 9.30 a.m. to what we're going to assume is maybe 11, which would be consistent with all of those witnesses who claimed to see her not only driving erratically, but also vomiting on the side of the road. The question is, why did she do it? Why did she do this? No real history that at least was known from her friends, from her colleagues, of severe alcoholism or alcohol abuse, no history of drunk driving, DUIs. So to choose on this morning at 9.30 a.m. to get behind the wheel and just start downing vodka did not make sense. What I also found really disturbing about the autopsy was that when they looked at her organs, they had initially suspected, okay, this must be the narrative of a secret alcoholic. She was clearly hiding it from the husband. He's defensive of her. He didn't know about it. People didn't know about it. Her organs did not show any real symptoms of somebody who had a history of abusing alcohol, which is even crazier to assume from those findings that this was a one-off instance. It literally is the scenario that Diane woke up, got the kids in the van, and just started drinking vodka, something she had no experience with. This was not a common occurrence is what it seemed like. That's what I'm getting at. It's so disturbingly senseless and odd. But if I was to approach this tragedy from sort of a skeptical angle, I would assume there's more to the story than what we know. I mean, the facts of the case seem laid out plain. Diane was drinking or had alcohol in her system. There are some people who have made the argument that she could have been a victim of a very rare syndrome known as auto-brewery syndrome, where basically your own body can create alcohol from an excess amount of yeast um, in your stomach. This is not very common. I, I wouldn't even say that it's 
something that we should consider because I think this would have been obvious in an autopsy, but maybe not. But what seems accurate here is that Diane was drinking. She chose to drink basically an entire bottle of vodka while behind the wheel with these kids. It could be that this was intentional, as dark as that is to assume, but maybe there's something to the story we don't know. What was her relationship with Daniel like? What was that morning like? Did they have a fight that he hasn't owned up to? Did she have suicidal ideations? And this was her way to sort of seek revenge on everybody in her life. Did she just snap? Did she go into a psychotic state? None of it really makes any sense. And I don't know that we're ever going to get any full clarity into her story, which is what makes it so unnerving. So what are we left with? As of today, Diane's story is still one that continues to circulate because it has been turned over time and time again. The body has been previously exhumed. They have really dug into this through private investigators, state-level investigators. All of them come to the same conclusion. Diane was drunk, but we don't understand her intentions. Was it accidental? Was it intentional? I think it's a story that I'll continue to sort of pry into year after year because I don't know that I can ever really let it go and not think about it unless one day we have full clarity into what went on on this day. I don't know how we'll get that, if it will come from Daniel, her husband, but I really hope we do. So with that, I want to thank you for listening to this episode of The Sinister. If you don't need an episode of Creep Time After Dark after this one, I don't know what to tell you, but thank you again for sitting through a really challenging and harrowing story. I still think it's important to talk about, to spread awareness about it. And with that, I'm going to catch you on the next one. Bye, guys.